You know, my mother used to say, always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Welcome. You've reached The Helpline, a podcast about listening to you. Here to listen, here to help. Here's your host, Hans Aname. Welcome back. We're talking with our special guest, Dr. Nancy Young, clinical psychologist at Pathways to Wellness in Costa Mesa, Southern California. We're having a riveting relationship conversation in regards to our write-in from Kathy, Kathy from Portland, Oregon, who was concerned about her reliance on her husband for emotional support. You can follow up with Kathy in part one in the previous episode, and if not, get ready for more tips on ways to sustain and build a happier relationship. Dr. Nancy, I'm sure so many people will identify with what you've talked about so far. Tell me, what's the difference with long-term happy couples? And I know we've kind of already addressed it, but when you're looking at your long-term couples, and what would we say long-term yeah. is? 10 years, 15 years or more? We've studied couples up to 30 years, the Gottman Institute has, uh, some of them uh, at longitudinally. So, you know, they watched uh, a group of newlyweds for 20 years to see what would happen. And some of them divorced and some of them stayed married unhappily and some of them uh, stayed married happily. And it's the happily married ones after 20 years that we look at as really skilled. Um, and they do some things that the unhappy ones don't. Um, they call them the masters and disasters of marriage. <laughs> I call them the masters and those who need skills. Yeah. I like it. Really, it's a skill set you need to yeah, learn. It's not often a complete it, disaster. No, I mean, it's not. Now we have tools and interventions that can help people learn how to do a really wonderful relationship if they want to do it. Yeah. But the, the really successful couples, they do a few things and don't do other things. Like they, they are overall, they're gentler with each other, uh, both in and out of conflict and more positive with each other and they keep their sense of humor even in a conflict discussion um, they run about 20 to 1 positivity to negativity outside of conflict 5 to 1 in conflict yeah um, they tend not to use the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse according to john gottman uh, they tend not to be critical um, they tend to be more curious than critical uh, and use general startup, they tend to accept influence from each other and not be so defensive. They tend to accept some piece, some little piece of the problem that they can take responsibility for anything. You know, they don't have to agree with everything, but they, they are generally what I would consider porous rather than made of steel. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? They really watch out for flooding. So they, keep their adrenaline level low. And there is one study that looked at, at by Kikolt Glazer and a bunch of other people that showed that uh, people with uh, lower adrenaline levels during the day, during conflict and at night, overall, in all those different conditions, when they were first married, were more likely to be married than those with higher adrenaline levels 10 years later. Mm. So it's really being able to ma manage your affect, manage your emotions and your adrenaline level. It would help to recognize what you are and how you run. Yeah, yeah. If you are typically somebody who runs 
uh, on a scale of zero to 10, if you typically run uh, at a, a five, it's not gonna take you much interaction with your partner to get you to an eight or a 10. If you meditate and you do yoga and you, you, you exercise and you keep your arousal level low, you're at a one, then it takes more to get you up over the top. And if you can breathe and, and remind yourself that this is only a little section in time and it's only your kneecap, then uh, you have a better chance at it. But it is true that when guys get flooded, you get a, a testosterone rush at the top that makes you grumpy. And uh, women get oxytocin at the top that makes us chatty. It is the wrong time to chat with your partner if you're female. You <laughs> chat to yourself silently. But right. uh, we tend to chat to calm ourselves down. Um, the other thing that because, especially if men keep their arousal levels low, they don't typically stonewall or check out of the relationship. Right. The, the other thing that's really crucial is contempt. They don't use contempt. If they do once in a while, they correct for it immediately. And contempt is, is putting yourself above your partner, acting smarter, uh, more mature, uh, more psychologically aware, um, you know, putting your partner down, correcting their grammar. Um, my late husband, not, he isn't late because of this. I didn't kill him. Um, but his favorite uh, was, let me tell you how it is in the real world, right? That's an right. example of contempt. It was a beautiful example. Um, in fact, you mentioned the four horsemen. That's contempt, criticism, stonewalling, defen defensiveness. defensiveness. Yeah. And for those who don't know, would you mind describing them? Yeah. Uh, criticism is uh, framing the partner as, uh, framing the difficulty or the, the issue as something wrong with your partner. Like, and that's really easy to do. That's just as simple oh, yeah. as describing yeah. your partner. Yeah. Why do you always, uh, you know, leave everything everywhere? Why do you leave your socks on the floor? What, what is all, you know, you can even do it. What is all this mess that the kids have made? You never let them have them clean it up. What do you just let them run wild? You know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, defensiveness is innocent victim. I, I, I am not. I did not. I, you know, or I can never please you. I'll have clients come in where typically guys do more defensiveness than, than females, although females do more criticism. And the guy will say, see, doctor, I can't please her. There's nothing I can do to please her. The antidote to defensiveness is taking some responsibility for some little piece of the problem. You know, right. being more porous, uh, accepting influence from your partner. and. Um, the interesting thing about the research on defensiveness and criticism for me is that we used to look at them as individual variables. It is true that, um, that criticism will often happen as a result of low level complaints from a woman being unheard, unresponded to. So I'll say, can you say that more gently? And the woman in my room will say, I've said this for 10 years. I want him to take out the damn trash, you know? And, and, uh, so sometimes if, if women are critical, the guy has just been oblivious or he's been impenetrable. Not always. Some women are raised in households where criticism is the norm of communication. 
and they have to learn general startup. Mm -hmm. So defensiveness is innocent victim or it's righteous indignation. Well, you know, yeah, I, I didn't clean up the house, but um, you didn't balance checkbook. You know, my, my sins are not as bad as your sins. Right. Uh, and so uh, that those are bad. They're very bad. Yeah, absolutely. And they absolutely. kind of indicate that the couple is in a competitive conflict pattern. I win, you lose, or vice versa. You don't want that. You want collaborative conflict. The biggest toxin for relationships is contempt. And uh, contempt is, as I said, elevating yourself above your partner. That is interesting because it, if we watch a 15-minute video uh, of a couple and we, we can count the number of contemptuous responses from the husband to the wife, and that allows us to predict the number of infectious illnesses she will have in the next four years. It wow. downregulates the immune system. Now, I'm not saying that conflict doesn't impact the guy's immune system or the guy's body. I, we, there is a study that shows that uh, competitive conflict, zero-sum game conflict, um, guys in that study died six to 10 years before their collaborative counterparts. So that competitive you know, conflict thing is very devastating for men. So our bodies suffer when we have a poorly managed conflict, right? And if you're always flooding, if you're, if you're popping up all the time, it's terrible for anybody's immune system. Stress is incredibly deleterious to our health. Yeah. I mean, it makes having a healthy relationship a matter of life and death. Yeah. And it's not so good for the kids either. A hostile marriage or a hostile divorce is very, very bad for the kids. Yeah. And all the more reason to continue to work on your relationship now and not just throw it out and not just give up on it, yeah. especially now. Yeah. I mean, so much of this is about relationship skill, but I get it. It's hard to cram for a test, right? Yeah. I mean, the times and the pressure are on all of us right now. And if you didn't have the skills before the pandemic, it can be tough to get them while you're trying to survive at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's not like marriage wasn't difficult enough, let alone having to deal with a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. And while this is happening, people are losing jobs. Um, they're being laid off and, and they're afraid financially and they're afraid, uh, you know, especially if you are a little older in life. I mean, young people tend to move jobs, I think, every two years. Mm. But um, older people who've been with a company for a long time and get laid off, they get pretty, um, pretty disoriented about what to do next. You know, it's hard for them to get a position when they're a little older because uh, younger people are coming up and will work for, uh, you know, Next to nothing. less expensive uh, benefits and stuff like that. So, uh, and, and it's disorienting not to know who you are. It, it causes people not to know who they are, Yeah. you know, without their, uh, I mean, it's sad that we need our, our work to know who we are. But it really gives an opportunity for people to discover um, other parts of themselves yeah. if they can, if they're not too depressed. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you don't know what you got until it's gone. And I think the work life 
and not just because of our culture and with how much we work in America, but, you know, it occupies space and room and we create relationships and meaning and self-efficacy. And so whether you hated your job or loved it part of the quarantine, I'm sure many people are missing the routine, the stability. And their friends at work. Yeah. I think they're missing the stability of what it provided them. Yeah. And when it's threatened, all sorts of things in our own inner space get sort of right. unsettled. And the kids miss their friends. Yeah. You know, if they're, if they're not in a big family, you have a big family. So, uh, so they've all got friends. But true, people that are only children or uh, maybe they're two separated by a big distance in age and they miss their friends. And uh, it's really probably not safe for them to go over to each other's houses right now. And there's no school online. It is, but you know, some yep. kids learn better in person. Definitely. Yeah. So it's uh, very worrisome. And on one hand, I I am concerned that life will never be the same. And on the other hand, I hope that life will never be the same. I mean, just the fact that you can see the sky now, and you can see the mountains. And there are more animals coming out. And, you know, um, it would be nice if we could make a shift a little bit. Do I want everyone working from home? No. I think people need each other. We're social animals. But we got to do something different. Oh, yeah. There are parts of Southern California and the world over where you can see the sky now because the pollution is down. Yeah. 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 So... And, and it's dramatic. It's really dramatic. So it's it's a real illustration right there in front of our eyes. This is if if we do something different, we can help the world. I mean, it's sort of like a relationship. A yeah. relationship is like it's like a garden. You plant a garden when you get together, and you can either tend it well and water it regularly and weed it, or you can let it go and it can get all full of weeds and that can choke out the good flowers. That'd be too high conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can ignore it and not water it and the leaves will turn brown. You can't paint them with green paint to get them better. They're just dying, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of a too much too much disengagement, too much uh, neglect. Yeah. And, and actually, you mentioned divorce earlier. According to the California Divorce Mediation Project, um, most, I think it's divorces, happen because there's too much disengagement. Right. Most relationships are in the losing each other, the boredom, the neglect, the I don't know you anymore. And the negativity. I mean, they, they go into the Roach, what we call the Roach Motel. John Gottman's word, Roach I think it's great. People go in and nobody comes out alive. <laughs> sort of as when you, 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 you're mad and you're focusing on the negatives in your partner and you think, oh, my partner's just really mean. Oh, mean and selfish are the two basic attributes. We have, or narcissistic. That's the, that's the disease of the day, Right. right. And, and so then you, you get up in the morning and you think, well, that wasn't a very nice smile. I didn't even get a smile. So then you go to Starbucks and you see the barista and you think, oh, 
that barista has a much nicer smile than my partner. <laughs> That's really nice. I feel really good now. And then you go home and you think, yeah, my partner's smile is, they didn't even smile at me at home. So then you go to back to Starbucks the next day and you go, oh, that barista remembered my name and asked me questions about my, my, my partner never does that. Now you're off and running. You're, yes. you're uh, putting a whole you're, new narrative. You're cherishing a real or imagined other mm -hmm. and trashing your partner. It needs to be the other way around. You need to cherish your partner, not real or imagined others. No comparisons. So, um, and that, that can cause uh, people to go outside the marriage. And I can tell you that dealing with affairs in uh, online therapy is harder, I think, than in person. Yeah. People are frustrated about that. Yeah. That therapy coaching environment is such a, it's such a healing place and so much of it is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's something missing when they can't feel your positive regard, your, your loving energy, especially if they're coming from a place of well, um, negativity. Right. Negative sentiment override. Yeah, if your if your bank emotional bank account is low, um, it's really like being overdrawn at the bank and having your house in foreclosure yeah. and having a flat tire on the way to work. It's a freaking disaster. Yeah, you can't call AAA. You don't have AAA. Your cell phone doesn't work. You can't get new tires. You don't have the money. I mean, it's just a mess. But if your if your problem is you have too much money then uh, a flat tire is, you know, an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. It's, it's difficult, but it's not uh, an impossibility. So if you're a negative sentiment override, everything is harder. It really pays to keep that emotional bank account high. It's like uh, making sure that you have enough money to eat so that you're not really frightened all the time. And actually, that comes right back to the principle of self-care. Yeah. Because being intentional about giving yourself that amount of, of margin and taking time in the day, whether it's developing interests or if it's yeah. sleep, proper nutrition, water, exercise, things that really engage your spirit in other ways, not just to distract you from the negativity, but to develop um, those positive muscles and those positive skills that can help to battle or fend off some of the stresses that are so prevalent. Yeah. Well, focusing on the positive and catching others and yourself doing things right, that's a muscle that you can develop. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that, all, the, all the gratitude lists and the uh, positive psychology stuff talks about that. You know, just making a gratitude list every day is really healing. It really helps with that. Um, I know some people sit down at the dinner table at night only until this happened, only 16% of American families ate dinner together without the TV on. And 33% of American families ate dinner together. The rest, no. But um, until this happened, uh, it, it's a muscle that you develop. So a lot of people sit down together and they say the highs and the lows of the day. Everybody in the family does that, you know. And anytime you can talk about positivity. I'm not talking about being Little Miss Sunshine or Pollyanna, but if you can think of things you're generally grateful for, um, boy, that's a gift. Mm. You know, that's developing that muscle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do that with our bodies, many of us. 
And so why not do that with our minds and our hearts? It's healing for the mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, I think, yeah. yeah, I think people often miss the benefit. You know, I read recently that, um, that, uh, optimists call themselves optimists and pessimists call themselves realists. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, there is some old research that said that pessimists are actually more accurate some of the time than optimists. But what? I would ask you, how does it serve? Right. You know, I believe in being self-serving. So it doesn't serve you to be pessimistic because it just makes you depressed and it spoils the current moment. Mm -hmm. I don't mean be oblivious or foolish or, you know, um, just uh, in denial all the time, but there are things out there that are beautiful and there are people that are doing really lovely things for each other during this crazy time. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we focus on some of that, I don't mean ignore the fact that people are dying and people are getting sick and people are, you know, going broke and losing their jobs and all that. I'm not, I'm not saying ignore that. I'm just saying, remember that you have to have five positives to every negative in a relationship. Right. And you need that to yourself. I mean, I think the research that uh, Barbara Fredrickson did says three positives to every negative for yourself. Mm -hmm stay positive, but I would say five to one, just make it five to one, you know? So yeah, you think about the state of the world and then you think about five positive things, five positive things in the world, you know? And when you think about it, that positive muscle applied to happy marriages. Now we're talking 20. Outside of conflict. Yes. That's a muscle that's, that's being yeah. exercised. That's flexing and working. That doesn't stop at five or 10 or even 15, 20. 20 outside of conflict. Right. The, it's the, a habit. Yeah, but the difficult thing about being home together 24-7, all day long, we make bids for connection. A yeah. bid for connection is I want your attention. Mm -hmm. And it can be slight, just a simple comment. Yeah, or a touch on the arm. Mm -hmm. in, in normal life, in the normal world, the masters of marriage turn toward each other in the apartment lab 87 times. Um, uh, and in the, the, the disasters or the ones who need skills turn toward each other 33% of the time, mm. 87 versus 33% of the time. Now, normally somebody goes to work or both people go to work eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. So at least, right. So now 24 seven, your partner's making bids for connection. Good gracious. That is a lot of turning towards, <laughs> you know, that is a lot. You see, if you're out working, other people are making bids for attention. So there's a little variety. I'm not mm -hmm. saying your partner's bad, but when your, your gal said, I think I'm too dependent on my partner, right? she needs to, to widen her, her reinforcement base. True. She needs to get some of those things from others. You know, there was a time when we didn't expect everything from our partner, we expected uh, to get married as a business deal, to have children and to work the farm, right? Uh, and Transactional. Yeah. And it's only in the last, say, 20, 30 years that we've decided that our partner has to be our best friend, um, the greatest sexual partner of our lives, 
our, our emotional support person, um, our intellectual uh, part stimulation yeah uh, recreation even yeah our our companion for recreation um, yeah everything everything coach our counselor and our, and our business partner and our business partner no and that's too much weight to put on one person and it makes us uh, unidimensional mm. you know we're made to be multi-dimensional beings I'm not saying get everything you need from people outside the relationship. I'm just saying, you know, if, if the only, you know, in the first stages of love, when all that dopamine is floating around and your friend is in that stage and all they can talk about is their, their part, their new love, George, right? <laughs> and you're like, God, would you give it up? Yeah. And they're like, well, I saw George today. Well, good for you. I, mm -hmm. I went to, you know, I went to the pool. Well, George swims. Well, that's good for George. I just, you know, I was there with the kids and we saw the lifeguard and the pool was open and that was nice. And they go, yeah, um, George might have been a, life, a lifeguard once. It's like My, there's, there's nothing Douglas. they can say that's not about George. And it's, it gets, frustrating yeah i think for kathy that's one of the things that really stands out she wrote um i just want to be his main priority because he's mine yeah well i would say could you define main priority yeah what does that mean does that mean you want to know that he has your back when things are really tough does that mean you want him to um turn towards you most of the time 87%, but not 100%. Does that mean that um, you want to know if you ask for something that at least some of the time, or maybe 60% of the time, he'll try to give it to you, not 100% of the time? Mm -hmm. uh, does that mean that he can't have any of his own needs or any of his own interests or any of the things that makes him him, make him him? Or does it mean that he can be himself and love you? And I would say to her, she needs to spread her reinforcement base. Now, with that said, people get into a relationship and they go, okay, now it's solved. I don't have to do anything anymore. I'm done. Right. I'm done. Right. I don't have to learn anything. I don't have to work at anything. I don't have to learn any new skills in relationship. And I would say that's like, uh, one of the questions you asked was, uh, when is it time to leave a relationship? And I would say when you are, you and your partner are, uh, don't want to learn anything else. When you're, when you're done learning, uh, if you, if you can't learn anything else and you're at each other's throats or you're disengaged, then, you know, what is there? Yeah. What's so, left? If you want to continue growing and learning in a relationship over 50 years, that's a horse of a different color. I mean, people, the myth in this culture is we grow up, we go to school, we get a job, we get married, and then it's solved. Right. It's like the, the thoughts we used to have in psychology that you quit growing and learning and building new neurons when you hit 30, right? 
that's not true. Every time we stretch ourselves to make an effort to learn something new, there's a proliferation of uh, neural Mm -hmm. growth at the peak of that. So it's called uh, neurogenesis. So, and that's no matter how old we are. So if you embark on this as a uh, marriage is the destination, not the journey, then, then you're going to be in trouble. So there are always new things to learn, new adventures to have. Uh, and this is a, a time that's completely different than when I was married the first time in 1971. Mm-hmm. Okay, there weren't these skills then. There was no research. I mean, the Gottman-Levinson research is the most robust, yeah. uh, ingenious, original, groundbreaking yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, um, and in those days, in 1978, um, Elaine Hatfield and, and uh, Bershide, Ellen Bershide, were awarded the Golden Fleece Award by Senator Proxmire for fleecing the American public because they asked for funding to study passionate love. He said, some things should remain a mystery. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And I went to a, an American Psychological Association conference in, I think it was 19, it's in the late 80s, maybe 1990. And they had, uh, they had nothing about people, nothing about love, nothing at all. They had a, a workshop on the sex life of the quail. Oh, Lord. But nothing about relationships between people or sex between people. <laughs> right i was like what right. yeah yeah a quail is nice but i really don't care yeah <laughs> so like all we it, know about people are, are what the mice do in mazes kind of a, that's right yeah that's right so we didn't study people i was told when i started studying the difference between uh intense compelling and secure comfortable love back in the late 70s that it was going to be professional suicide. Mm. Nobody wants to know about that. Everybody wants to know about that. You're right, Dr. Nancy. Seems like it. It seems like it. I thought it was important. But I think, yeah. I think, and even with the proliferation of positive psychology now, oh, we're starting yeah. to get it despite psychology's pathological roots. You know, it's like when we look to aspire and to learn, when we look to discover and forge ahead and find new frontiers, or, you know, it makes us, we become more happy, more healthy. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just a change in perspective towards the positive, yeah, it actually awakens our immune system and our energies, and we become more immune and less prone to ill effects. We stay younger. We stay younger. Right. And so it could be the, the Botox alternative. Although, <laughs> right. With video, I think, oh, I should have done something, Juvenon, Botox, something. But, but then there's the research that says microfacial expressions that last... I, less than a second, less than half a second, mm-hmm. that when we make those uh, expressions, we generate emotion physiologically in the body. Mm. I had one person say that that, that was, the research uh, uh, overruled that, but according to Ekman's work, he showed that you know when we make an expression on our face, our body generates the chemicals for that emotion. Mm. You know, if we're happy and we're smiling and we're 
I mean, not that we have to smile all the time. I mean, that's sort of what women are taught from birth. You know, honey, why aren't you smiling? But if we can um, stay a little bit positive, the positive psychology people are fabulous. Mm. And uh, I think their studies on resilience are important, really, really significant to look at. Yeah, so. yeah. And resilience can be learned, uh -huh. just like a reflex. Whereas with a muscle in your bicep or your tricep, it'll contract to withstand pressure, stress, or resistance. There's something very interesting emotionally about how does strength show up in your affect? How does resilience show up? Right. One basic aspect is the ability to perspective shift and transition towards positivity, mm -hmm. energy, life. Mm -hmm. Hardiness. Hardiness. Yeah. Yeah. Salvador Matti studied hardiness years ago. Yeah. Dr. Nancy, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think this is going to be really good. Good. I hope. hope it helps. Something helps somebody. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people are going to be helped by this. I mean, just your wisdom and the, the, the care in your voice. I mean, people can hear it. Well, that's because I think you are a bright, beautiful energy field. <laughs> yeah. I thank you. I do. I thought that the first time I saw you. I can <laughs> I feel, feel the energy. It's wonderful. Uh, thank you. So uh, whatever you do, you're going to be spectacular at it. Oh, you know, you. I mean, I know you've had a number of reinventing yourself incarnations. <laughs> right. Yeah. The universe has provided you with lots of variety. <laughs> true, true. This I think this is round four. <laughs> yeah, this is this has been um, interesting, and so I'm having fun, and I'm blessed. You're a study in resilience and hardiness. I'm gonna remind the wife when she starts to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, for sure. Yeah. I've loved talking with you. Thank you for listening, and thanks to all of those that wrote in. And if you'd like to add your perspective on the comments made today, share your thoughts on the blog at thehelplinepodcast.com.